On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. Everybody and welcome to another Second Shot Sit Down. Uh, I mentioned this last week that we're really trying to find a breadth and depth of guests to come from all walks of life and talk about different experiences and a little bit of a warning on, on the front end of this discussion. Um, gosh, it's a powerful, powerful second shot. Um, we're also going to be getting into the depths of mental health and, and suicide. So just know that going into it uh, and, and making sure that you're in a place when you're wanting to hear this discussion and really delve deep into it. Our guest today is Mark Hennick. He is joining us from Toronto. He is the CEO and Principal Strategist for Strategic Mental Health Consulting. This guy is in high demand as an international keynote speaker on mental health recovery. So there's that, his professional career, but really what we're talking about today when it comes to mental health is the, the, the really miraculous story that he has to tell about his own journey through mental health. All right, Mark, welcome in. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Gosh, I have to go right to the front part of this. Um, what, a million people have seen your TEDx talk on, um, on your suicide attempt and what happened. So we have to start here in order to really get into the backstory. You were saved from death by a stranger. This is one of the most watched TEDx talks in the world. Can you talk about what happened that day? Sure. Well, it you know the the talk in in the talk I tell two stories. Uh, one from very early in my uh, childhood, really, when I first started to become suicidal, I was about 12 years old, uh, and when that happened, it came as a surprise to everybody. I much later in the course of writing the book that you the, that I had just finished, um, I pulled all my medical records from that time, and the nurse in the emergency room interviewed my mother, uh, and she quoted my mother as saying, "We didn't see it coming. Mark is a good boy." as though being a good boy and having a hard time are two mutually exclusive things. Mm. And then fast forward in the TED Talk, I tell another story about my what ended up being my last uh, suicide attempt. Uh, years later, after repeated hospitalizations, I'd climbed over the railing of a bridge, uh, ready to jump because I was hopeless and helpless. And if it wasn't for a complete stranger who saved my life, I wouldn't be here today to tell the story. So what age were you when that happened? I was 15 uh, when I had climbed over the railing, so I'd been struggling with suicide and mental illness for uh, about three years by that point formally, at least with a diagnosis. Uh, but really, uh, as, I, as I found out myself in the course, over the course of writing the book, uh, I had probably been struggling for a lot longer. So can you take us through that day? And I, like, I, I know that you've told this story before, but for our audience, um, can you take us through what was going on that day, what, what took you to that bridge, and then what happened with this stranger? 
You know, I try to help people to understand from an insider's view of what goes on in the mind of somebody who is suicidal. And, you know, I, I've, I've gained this through my own lived experience, but also then working as a clinician and counseling people who have been suicidal too. And the best way that I have I've figured out to describe it is this sense of collapse. Uh, in the TED Talk, I call it this perceptual collapse, where nothing else, you can't see or think of anything else outside of that moment and what you have to do or what you feel like you have to do, and you don't see any other options. And I had gotten to that place through being in and out of the hospital more than half a dozen times. Uh, I had been on uh, a dozen or more different medications. I had talked to therapists, and I felt like everybody had just written me off as a crazy kid uh, who would never amount to anything or who might be a violent criminal or one of those other uh, really damaging stigmas that are out there. Uh, so when I, uh, I, I've started thinking of them as trivial triggers, you know, when you're so, um, so raw and so vulnerable, it doesn't take very much to push that domino over uh, and, and to set in, in uh, motion a plan in that case uh, to finally kill myself. So when that had happened, I uh, enacted my plan. I went to this uh, place, this bridge in my hometown, uh, because it was significant for me. There, there was a, an importance to that place. I climbed over the railing, uh, and it, I looked out over an abandoned steel plant in my hometown. And I now know that I went to that place because that abandoned steel plant reminded me of how I felt inside. It was toxic and, and, uh, and shut down and cold. And I think that's really why I went there. That's what brought me there that night. And that's how you felt. You showed up there. And at what point did this stranger show up and uh, save you? You know, my, my um, collapse inside my mind, I think, was so acute in that moment that I actually didn't hear him arrive. I didn't really, oh. I didn't know that he came uh, until he interrupted me. He came up from behind me. Uh, he said in a very casual way, uh, you don't look like you're doing so good. <laughs> and I, I didn't really talk very much to him because by that point I had climbed up over the barricade. I was on about an inch and a half or so of concrete, only under my heels and my toes were on nothing. Uh, and I was just kind of holding the railing behind me. Uh, and I remember he didn't, this stranger, I couldn't see him. I, I glanced back, but I could only remember that he was wearing a light brown jacket. And I'm sure he had introduced himself, but I, I didn't hear, I could hardly hear anything. Uh, but he approached the, di the, uh, the railing a good distance away and just talked to me about the most mundane things, my interests and my hobbies, and if I had any pets and, and my friends and favorite subjects. You know, he, it, what really stood out to me was that he didn't ask me about my diagnosis or my medication or my treatments or anything like that. He just got to know me. What do you think he was trying to do? I mean, well, that's not, I know what he was trying to do, but I mean, what, 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 what do you think was behind him asking those questions and just maintaining a conversation? You know, I didn't actually find that out until much, much later. And I think over the next dozen years or more, uh, I didn't even know if he was real. Uh, I mean, I didn't know, because at, at one point he, he was talking to me for long enough that I started to become more aware of the surroundings around me. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that police had arrived, they had set up barricades on the bridge and that crowds had actually gathered. This was midnight on a Sunday night in, in March. It was cold out, there was still snow on the ground. But in, I grew up in a small town, so when people hear things on the police scanner, they come out to check out what was happening. Right. Uh, so crowds had gathered, and there was a group of young men, and I remember one of them shouting out for me to jump, and he called me a coward. And when he said that, that's when I let go of the railing and I started to fall, and the stranger in the light brown jacket grabbed me and saved my life. And I didn't know 
if that whole thing had actually happened until more than a dozen years later, when I asked for the public's help in finding that stranger who saved my life, and, and we were successful. Oh my gosh. Okay, I've, I've got a lot of questions now. Okay, so you're, you're at the edge. This gentleman is speaking to you for you don't know how long. You're kind of, it sounds like maybe, in the, I don't know if the right description would be like in and out of consciousness or in and out of awareness about your surroundings. You heard the person on the ground, and then this guy grabs you knowing that, I mean, he, he could have gone down with you. He absolutely could have. And uh, when we found him uh, many years later, uh, it didn't take very long. We went on national news here in Canada, and uh, I took to my Twitter and Facebook pages to ask for the public's help. Uh, we found him, uh, and I found out that actually a week before I started looking for him on, on national television, he had already started looking for me because he saw the TED Talk that I did in which I, in which I talked oh, about him. I didn't wow. know that he existed. Um, and a week before I found him, he had already started writing me a letter in case someday he ever found me. So when he sent me the letter, I read it and I recorded it. I, it's still up on YouTube. So if any of your viewers want to see a video of a guy really ugly crying online, oh there's, there's this video of me reading this letter because he tells me about his perspective, uh, his side of the story approaching the railing and how scared he was and how he was just a guy who happened to be passing by the, uh, the right place or the wrong place, I'm not sure, at the right time, uh, and, and how he didn't know what to do. So he just talked to me. Wow. How was it that you lost touch with him from that day? Uh, I was loaded into the ambulance after he saved my life. He pulled me backward over the railing, and, and I later found out through the records that I had, my body was just completely limp. I had, I had completely given up. Uh, and they brought me back to the hospital and ad admitted me, I think, for 24 hours. Uh, and when I left the next morning, I remember the feeling that I'd been in and out of hospital so many times that they discharged me without any plan, without any follow-up. Uh, I think they, they gave me a taxi voucher so I could take a taxi home. Uh, nobody came to get me, and I was still just a kid. Uh, and Wait, it nobody wasn't came until to get you? I had been in and out so many times of that revolving door that I, I was one of those kids who, they're called frequent flyers in the mental health system. The more help they need, the less help they get. Um, so I think that people were sick of me. Uh, but what was different at that day, uh, on that morning when I was released, uh, I remember that it was the first day of spring, and I'm not sure why that was significant for me, uh, but I was stuck with this image in my mind of these two men, the one who was standing on the sidelines and the one who reached out and saved my life. And a big part of the reason why I was trying to kill myself that night and all the times before that was that I felt like I had no control over my life and who I was, but now maybe I did. Maybe I could actually be like that guy who saved me. Uh, maybe I could reach out to others too. Uh, so even though I didn't know who he was, even, he saved my life, but he actually gave me my whole life from that point on. Wow, okay, so this was a true second shot. That day was. I wasn't sure if perhaps there was more struggle after this, or, or was this really the moment where your life transformed on that bridge with that, that exact day with the man on the ground and the man behind you? Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want to be too romantic about this, and I, I found this out through the book as well, that I didn't realize uh, for the next dozen years that I was in recovery from depression. I didn't, I know it might sound silly, but no. I didn't realize that I had tried to stop killing myself because that was such a, a significant thing for me. And recovery is, this is what I discovered about recovery. 
that you don't realize you're recovering very often until you've made it far enough mm. that you can actually look back and see how far you've come. Because that was very much the case for me. I still had depression. I still had crises to a lesser degree. I still struggled a lot. I still took medication and therapy. Uh, but incrementally over the, the next decade, uh, I got better and better uh, until I eventually found this man and realized I'm not sick anymore. And that was such a powerful realization for me. Mark, that's the scary thing uh, is, you know, if there's somebody listening or watching who has a child who maybe is considered a frequent flyer, so to speak, um, and, and just the family always living on edge and wondering, like, is this the last day with them? And then also wondering, what do we do now? You know, their child's saved or, okay, so they're, they're, they're back hospitalized. We know that that lasts a very short time before they're sort of released, often with zero tools um, or even just referrals of where to go. What was the next step for you um, when you got out of the hospital in terms of approaching recovery? Uh, when I left the hospital that last time uh, with this realization that I could, you know, be like that stranger who saved my life, I didn't even know what that meant, mm -hmm. um, and still very much struggling, I remember one of the first things that I did uh, after I started feeling a little bit better about it was uh, go to my high school principal and ask if I could speak to my peers about suicide, if I could o open oh, up wow. my conversation and disclose my own struggles. Because, you know, I felt like a lot of people knew about it and were talking about me behind my back anyway, uh, but I had never really owned my story in, in that way. I had never admitted it. Uh, and I remembered that to this day, the principal saying to me, no, uh, that you can't talk about suicide because if you talk about it, it gives people the idea to go out and do it. Now, at that point, I, I had known a bit about al already about the so-called contagion effect and uh, copycat suicides, and that is a, a or that is a very real phenomenon in different circumstances. But there's also a huge body of research I later found out uh, to support the fact that talking about suicide is by far the most effective way to prevent it because it gives people license, it gives people permission to open up. So I, I remember uh, when the principal told me no, I went home and I wrote my very first ever uh, letter to the editor of our lo local newspaper, the Cape Breton Post, uh, and I disclosed all of my struggles that I had been through. Uh, and uh, I went to school the next morning and there were television news cameras in the principal's <laughs> office asking why it wasn't okay to talk about mental oh health and gosh. mental illness in school. Where so. was this? Where did you grow up, Mark? Uh, Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, uh, which is on the east coast of Canada. Okay, okay, and you said it was a small town, so everybody kind of knew. Everybody was like, okay, well, now there's this principal who has someone willing to speak about suicide, and he's not up for it. And I don't think he liked me very much after <laughs> television cameras came to his office. Uh, but that said, uh, it was the exact, the exact opposite result happened than what I feared most. I feared that I would be ostracized, that I would be excluded and just treated as weird and crazy. And the opposite thing happened. When I opened up in such a big way, people started coming to me and telling me that they had struggled too, or that they had lost a father, a brother, or another relation to suicide. Uh, and that's really, that was the first realization that, oh, telling stories is important. Opening up is important because people want to talk about mental illness and suicide. The problem is that nobody is asking. So yeah. I've committed my life to asking those questions. Yeah, and we're asking too. I mean, when I heard about your story, I thought, gosh, this is something that we need to share. I've just, I've, I've I'd never heard of somebody who had been that close to the brink. I mean, that truly on the edge of death, on the edge of this bridge, and then come back and made, made it 
you know, their life's work to do what you do. So it's remarkable. One, one more little just delve into your past here. I, I can't get I can't get off the fact that nobody picked you up from the hospital that day. Um, what was going on with your family at that time? You know, being a family caregiver of somebody with a mental illness, uh, I know from being that person with a mental illness and, you know, from supporting others as well, uh, being a caregiver is exhausting. And I think that, you know, there's a, sen there's a certain compassion fatigue that comes from loving somebody so much, yet feeling so hurt uh, that they, they feel the way that they do. Uh, and the system, the, the healthcare system doesn't help uh, because family members often want to get their family member help, but the system just doesn't support it. Either they don't have the money or there are no resources or uh, no professionals in their area, whatever it might be. So my mother, I think in particular, uh, you know, I had the closest relationship with her by far. Um, she took it very hard because she was a nurse. She worked in the hospital, but she was also the one that had to bring her little boy, her youngest son, to the hospital every few weeks. Um, and I think that that really wore her down. So around the time that I found the stranger in the light brown jacket, whose name I much later found out was Mike, by the time, around the time I found Mike, uh, I went back home to Cape Breton. Uh, I had since settled in Toronto. Uh, I asked my mother to go for a walk with me, and I took her back to the place on the bridge where I tried to jump. Uh, and it was there that we finally, I think, came to a certain sense of reconciliation, that it wasn't her fault that I was struggling so much. Um, a few weeks after uh, we went and, and really reconciled uh, to that point, my mother actually died very suddenly. Um, oh, we didn't realize we didn't realize that she was sick, um, but it was almost like we finally concluded uh, the business that she had been sent here to do. Uh, and I, I really honestly think that uh, she died uh, no longer feeling guilty uh, for my struggles. Yeah, gosh, what a story. Um, you think about closure and having that moment with your mom and how serendipitous that, that was to, to wrap that up. What, um, how, how did she deal with this over the years? I know you mentioned it sounded like she had some guilt and, and you know, all parents deal with that to a certain extent, but this was a lot with you. Um, what was going on in, in her life as you were going through all this? It sounds like she was working and you had siblings. Yeah, we had, a, I, I think, a, a very shared journey. Uh, and I didn't fully appreciate this until after she died. And that was part of the motivation, actually, for writing the book. Uh -huh. You know, the only person that I would have been afraid of reading the book was my mother, uh -huh. uh, mainly because her story was so intertwined with mine. Uh, and we shared so much together. We had moved in uh, with a, a man who ended up becoming uh, emotionally abusive. Uh, who, whose toxic masculinity, I think, infected me from a very, very young age. I heard more times than I could count to be a man. Ever since I was about mm -hmm. seven years old, he told me almost every day to be a man, that men don't cry, that men don't express their emotions. Uh, you know, so feeling bullied and scared at home and at school, uh, I later realized was, was my mother's experience as well. Uh, we had With left... Him. With him, yeah. we had left uh, about, I think, 10 times I counted through the writing of the book, where we would go away for a few days or at one point a few months to live somewhere else. And I never understood why we always went back, why my mother always went back to him. And I think that, that uh, day on the bridge when my mother finally uh, forgave herself, I think I finally understood a little bit about her journey too. And mm -hmm. she finally did leave uh, in those last few years of her life. Oh, 
I'm so glad you both were able to do that. It just it just takes a lot. When you were talking about, you know, you were worried about going up and saying, hey, I'll, I would like to share my story about, about suicide and, and mental health, and you were, your worry was, oh, are people gonna think I'm weird? But it also sounds like you had a little bit of that premonition beforehand anyway, that the world looked at Mark as being just troubled and odd and, and not connected to the other kids. Um, can, is, is there any, oh gosh, I just think about parents who have children who are mm. dealing with a similar thing. Is there anything you can impart to them? Any words of wisdom or advice for people who know that their kids are in the same situation you were in um, through, it sounds like age 12 through 15 or so? I think that hopelessness is easy. It's easy to fall into despair, whether you're a parent or the kid themselves, uh, and thinking that nothing will ever get better, uh, and this will be this person's curse. You know, I was raised Irish Catholic. I heard from my grandmother all the time, Mark, maybe this is your cross to bear. I thought that I was maybe just one of the unlucky few uh, who were cursed with this. Uh, what I didn't realize until much, much later was that my struggle could actually become my strength that I could use this, then certainly as becoming a writer, the, uh, the wealth of stories uh, from the struggles that I've been through. So I think that there's always hope, uh, no matter how dire the situation might be, because that's what resilience is. Resilience isn't always avoiding adversity. Resilience is what you do with the adversity that's happened to you. And I think the strongest people that I've ever met in my life have also uh, had times when they've been the most broken. So, uh, you know, if your kid is, is struggling right now, uh, support them, love them, remind them every day how much you love them, uh, and don't stop believing in them. They could turn out and, and do something really important with that experience. Yeah, like, like you've done. I mean, you've done something really important. Talk, talk about what you do at Strategic Mental Health Consulting and, and, and how you got to that place, because I know it wasn't like, okay, he's saved from the bridge and now he's doing a TEDx talk and now he's got this consulting group. Like, what, what, what yeah. happened in between there? So after I left high school, I was one of the, I was the first in my immediate family to go off to college because I wanted to understand better, part, mostly just what I had been through myself. It was an entirely selfish endeavor. Uh -huh. uh, and then I ended up going off to graduate school to study how kids develop, uh, again, because I wanted to understand my own childhood. Uh, when I uh, came back to Canada, I had I'd studied in the United States for graduate school. I came back to Canada and uh, started working as a frontline clini clinician, working with 16 to 24-year-olds uh, who were dealing with severe and persistent mental illnesses, because I wanted to be the person that I needed all those years ago. Uh, I met through people through working in the in the mental health care system that I realized that so many people in that system have struggles of their own, uh, and I think that the, the clients and the patients that we worked with uh, need to know uh, about the authentic experiences of the people helping them, because I never got that really uh, as a young person. So I think that all of those experiences eventually culminated in doing this TED Talk and opening up uh, the conversation even further. Uh, and now I think we're in a state of mental health awareness that we've never seen before. You know, I think all of, through, throughout all of human history, we've thought the same old negative stigmatizing way about mental illnesses. And it's just right now in the last few years that we have celebrities opening up and we're doing media about it and, and having uh, huge uh, uh, awareness campaigns about mental health. I feel so privileged 
to have been a part of that for so many years. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised at how wildly popular that TED Talk was and how much people gravitated toward it? I, I absolutely was, because it started uh, with a, a, uh, an argument, as many of my, <laughs> as many of my big projects do. Um, I was on Wikipedia, uh, and for those who don't know, Wikipedia is a crowdsourced encyclopedia online, of course. Oh yeah, uh, and, we use Wikipedia. And there are, oh, we know. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. And there are chat pages on the back of all the pages where people can discuss the content that's on the page. So I was on the page for suicide. I was working as a mental health clinician at the time, uh, and I was making some edits to the page on suicide saying that it's not okay uh, to frame suicide as a crime because suicide isn't a crime. Uh, And and certainly here in Canada hasn't been a a crime since the 70s and hasn't been in most jurisdictions for a long time. So that's why we don't say commit suicide because people commit murder, they commit arson, they commit rape, Uh, but people die by suicide because suicide isn't a crime. Anyway, uh, that argument- That's helpful in terms of terminology. I I like that, that that's incredibly helpful. That's just what, that's the word we hear, so it's the word that perpetuates, and I, but I understand what you're, what you're saying. And that's exactly the response that I got from the Wikipedia uh, crowd, uh, was that the most common way to say it is to commit suicide, and it very much is. Um, so we had a bit of a back and forth, but then I thought, you know what, if there aren't enough resources or, or um, sources out there right now to, say, die by suicide instead of commit suicide, then I'll create one. And that's who I think I had become. If what you need doesn't exist, then build what you need. Uh, so I, I asked Absolutely. to do this TED Talk, they accepted it, and it just caught fire millions of people all over the world. And what kind of response did you hear? I'm guessing you heard from people who had similar uh, near-death experiences. Um, I did, yeah. yeah. It was very much the. It was very similar to the experience that I had back in high school when I wrote the letter to the editor, uh, but on a on a global scale. Right. Uh, and I think the impact on me was that I then all of a sudden felt like an imposter. Uh, that who am I to tell these people how to recover? I'm just a guy who who has struggled with a mental illness. And I really I think that was the motivation for finding the stranger in the light brown jacket that I needed to prove to myself that he was real. What's, what's he up to? What was it like when you found him? We, um, so the, I went on television that morning. I found out that he'd already been uh, aware I'm of me for just you. for about a week. Uh, they sent me the letter that he had already written me, uh, and I read it. Uh, I recorded a video of myself reading it, and, uh, and then I knew we needed to meet. So we flew him up to Toronto, where I'd, where I'd been living, still am living. Uh, and we met in downtown Toronto. We brought television news cameras along mm-hmm. because we figured we started this in public, we might as well finish it. <laughs> Everybody needs to hear the end of the story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I remember when he walked toward me and um, he just did the exact same thing he did the last time we were, we were together. He, he wrapped his arms around me and he hugged me. Uh, and I remember telling him that I didn't know how to thank him. I mean, how do you thank somebody for not just saving your life, but for being your role model for your whole life, for giving you your whole life? Um, So the best thing that I could think to do was to show him the life that he gave me, that he made possible. And I introduced him to my wife and to my then little boy. And now he's my second little boy's godfather. And he'll meet my one-year-old little girl soon. Um, I talked to him about... Uh, my hobbies and my my work and all the things that I loved that I never thought I would have had when I was a 15-year-old kid standing on the edge of a bridge. And it was all because of him. 
And when you said you were you were talking earlier about how he asked you what your hobbies were, and I remember thinking, well, Mark, I bet I bet did you probably didn't you were in such a dark place, you probably didn't have much to say to him at that point about what you liked to do because because you were struggling with liking anything. And then yeah, in round two, you're just such a full life. That's it. And and Mike commented on that too in his letter that I was so silent when he was standing next to me on the bridge. But um, I think it's an important lesson for anybody who wants to help is to make space for the silence, to hold that silence, that it's not because the person isn't thinking or feeling anything. They just aren't able to express it and that's okay, but your presence can still be supportive. Yeah. And, and, and you also said he wasn't like particularly savior kind of guy in his regular life. He, he sounds like he considers himself to be regular guy, not hero guy. Um, and, and I like that because it means that the rest of us can still make an impact on somebody, um, you know, doing our regular old things. Absolutely. He was just a regular guy. He was on his way to a back shift, uh, to, to a night shift at his job. He didn't have suicide prevention training. He wasn't a doctor or a psychologist. And I felt like by the time I had gotten to the bridge, I knew what those people all sounded like already because yes. they all talked at me. It, it felt like all those people just wanted to do recovery to me, like I was a broken down car on the side of the road. And Mike just got to know me. Just, just reached out and had empathy and connected with me. And, and that's, I think, really what helped to dissolve those barriers, to loosen me up a little bit, uh, to get to, to realize what was happening around me. Whew. Mike, man, what a story that, that he has with you, Mark. Let's talk about your book um, that's upcoming. Who, who is it for? If somebody, I am, I'm always um, gentle and careful about recommending things that go really deep for someone who's in a really hard spot right now. Is it for those people or um, is it for people who are more further along into their recovery process? Uh, you know, I think it's for everybody, and I actually I address this right up front, right okay. in the very first pages. I say, you know, that that I talk about suicide, uh, and we know from now years of research uh, that that's an effective way to break down stigma. Uh, that we need to talk about suicide. That said, you need to be aware of where you are in your recovery. So, what I would suggest to anybody for anything, you know, we never know what's going to trigger us, uh, especially if we're extremely vulnerable. Yeah. That if uh, if you start into if somebody is reading my story or anybody else's if you start edging into a, a, a discomfort or a pain that's good to know because then then you can put the book down and go engage your self-care practices and get the help that you need you need to be able to know uh, what your triggers are mm -hmm. and, and, and your book does detail your full story I know we've, we've talked about it a little bit here but really the, the depths of that full story and then your recovery it does, but you know, I also I've been doing this for a long time, so I try to do it in uh, in the right way. And yeah. we know that the way to talk about suicide is not to sensationalize it or uh, not to to cast shame uh, on suicide, uh, but rather to talk about it in context. Uh, that there's a reason why this happened. I was mentally, I had a mental illness. Uh, I had trauma and and a variety of social social circumstances that led to that. It didn't happen in isolation. And we also know that when we talk about suicide, we need to share stories of hope that recovery from mental health problems and illnesses is not only possible it's actually expected recovery is likely when people get the help they need Wait, the problem say it is again. they're not hold on hold on hold on hold on i just think that's so important what you just said recovery is likely when you get yeah, the help you need 
from the vast majority of mental health problems and illnesses that people deal with, you know, the heavy hitters, depression and anxiety. Uh, and those are often even underlying most other severe mental health problems and illnesses. Even in highly acute cases sometimes of schizophrenia and other conditions, we've documented cases of recovery. But for the vast majority of people, if they can get access to either the medication that they need that works for them uh, in a more in a more targeted way than we're currently prescribing, and if they can get access to psychotherapy, which we know from decades of research works and sometimes even works better than medication, if they can get those two things both together in combination therapy uh, with the supports that they need, uh, then we know that they have a much higher likelihood of recovery. So this is my life's mission now, is making sure that people actually get what we know works. I'm curious, do you consider recovery to be long-term psychotherapy and finding the right medication, or long-term not, not, you know, eventually sort of weaning off of those things? That's a great question, you know, and I think that recovery looks a little bit different for everybody. Uh, that for some people it might be yoga and healthy eating, for others it might be uh, lifelong medication and psychotherapy. Uh, for me, uh, it ended up being I found the right medication eventually. I, I worked through psychotherapy, particularly in doing my own psychotherapy training, training as a therapist. That's how I learned mm -hmm. psychotherapy. Uh, and then eventually I, I was able to stop doing both. I still have a therapist on call in case I need a tune up every now and then, sure. uh, but I was able to get to a place where I didn't need that. That's not for everybody, uh, and I want to make the point of saying too that recovery doesn't necessarily mean cure. It means that you come out the other side of the struggle different and ideally better in some ways than how you went in. Yeah, I appreciate your candor in that. Um, it's a lot to navigate. One, la one last thing before, before we wrap up here. You had mentioned, um, and this is another one I'm just sticking on, and I think I, I don't want to leave any questions unasked here. You mentioned when you were first hospitalized, I believe it was your first hospitalized, your mom had said, gosh, <laughs> this is totally unexpected. Um, you know, looking back, and again, we're not, this is not to cast blame on mom, um, just more so trying to be helpful for parents. What should they be looking for? What should we be looking for? I know you have kids, I have a, a daughter. What, what, what are we trying to keep an eye out for to make sure that we are meeting our kids' needs if they, you know, need some help outside of mom and dad and family. Yeah, you know, I, I've gotten this question a lot. I, I don't do live speaking anymore, of course, because of the, the pandemic, but uh, over the course of many years, parents coming to me who have a, a kid who's struggling uh, or who have even lost a child to suicide, tragically. Uh, and what I tell them is, is always the same. Sometimes you can be too close. Sometimes you can't see their symptoms because you love them so much yeah. that your mind, your brain just isn't letting you see that they might be struggling. That's when I think it's important to take a step back, to um, inquire with their teachers in particular because they see them often very much, or coaches or whoever spends a lot of time with them. And what you wanna watch for are significant changes from how they usually are, changes from baseline. Uh, if they're sad a lot or if they seem highly irritable, uh, it might be hormonal, but it might not. Depression and anxiety are not a phase. Uh, they're, they're conditions that can be treated and should be. So I'd suggest uh, to watch out for changes, uh, but then also to have conversations about emotions with your kids. You know, little kids are born with feelings. Anybody who's ever seen a toddler knows how they, <laughs> that they know how to feel things with great exuberance, but they're not born with the words for those feelings. So teach your kids how to talk about what they're feeling, what to call those feelings. Uh, that's the first step in addressing any difficult ones. 
Okay, and what do you do for the, if there's an adult child that you have, a, yeah, I don't know, 18 year old, 19, 20, 20 what do you do with, with that age child if you suspect that something's going on, um, you can't make them get help, what, what, what can you do? Yeah, you sure can't. And this, I think, applies for uh, partners and spouses or coworkers and many other people that you can't do recovery to people. You can't inject recovery into people, uh, that that's something that they have to do themselves. You know, you, it's said in psychotherapy all the time that you have to do the work. Um, so I think then the, the best way that people can support others, uh, adults who are struggling, uh, is to let them know that you're there for them, uh, that you're non-judgmental, that you may not understand what they're going through, but that's okay. Uh, you're still willing to help, you're still willing to be on their side, to be their teammate. Uh, they're not looking for you to fix all their problems, that person who's struggling. They're looking to have somebody in their corner uh, who's willing to help them navigate the system. If you can be that safe person for them, then that's a wonderful support. Yeah, that's great advice. As you mentioned, you went seeking out education and because of your own struggles and curiosity, I suspect people will find this very interview because of their own struggles. So I'd like to give, you know, what are, is there a top website for people to go to, a top hotline to go to if somebody's really struggling immediately and hearing this? Well, certainly the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a go-to resource if people are struggling with suicide. You can also reach out to organizations like Mental Health America or the National Alliance on Mental Illness and a number of others, uh, and they can be the best local resources. These, these are grassroots organizations that know their communities very, very well uh, and often will know what local resources are available to you too. That's so, that's so helpful, Mark, thank you. And, and also, let everybody know about the book, um, where they will be able to get it, what they should search for, et cetera. So-Called so Normal, my, my book is available now for pre-sale at Barnes & Noble and Amazon and most other uh, major re retailers worldwide. Uh, so get on there and, and reserve your copy now because when it ships on January 12th, uh, you'll be the first to get it if you've already pre-ordered. Mark, it has been incredibly uh, helpful to talk to you. No doubt this conversation will help a lot of people. Thank you so much for being so open and so honest and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, you guys, I will link up Mark's information on the episode notes and also on the website. Uh, I'll also put up links to those suicide and prevention uh, resources as well. If you guys know somebody who has taken a second shot, who has a story that you think could impact somebody else, that could help somebody else, email us at secondshotcast at gmail.com, secondshotcast at gmail.com, and we will be back with more second shots. They come out every Thursday on CW33 TV and every Friday on all your podcast platforms. I'm Jenny Anchando and I'll talk to you soon.